Well, friends, it's a, a real, real joy to be back with you once more, uh, to be able to speak with you over these next few weeks. Thank you for your prayers in advance uh, for this time. And uh, my wife, Margaret, also sends her greetings to you all. And uh, she's looking forward to being with us next Wednesday. She's due in on the ferry about half one next Wednesday. So uh, I'm looking forward to that uh, as well, I can assure you. Uh, Ray mentioned uh, Take Heed Ministries, and it's hard to believe that on the 1st of September this year, it'll be 29 years since I first established uh, that ministry in 1990. And uh, over the years, as I've sought to defend the truth of the gospel against false teachings, uh, whether from within professing Christendom or pseudo-Christendom or non-Christian religions, uh, I have been privileged to meet a number of fellow contenders uh, who have uh, ministries that likewise seek to defend the gospel. And uh, quite a number of those folks have uh, come from a, a Roman Catholic background and then they've been converted and then they have established ministries where they seek to reach out with the truth to their former co-religionists. Uh, I think of three in particular, uh, a man called Rob Zins. Uh, Rob uh, has a ministry called uh, Christian Witness to Roman Catholicism. And uh, I first met him in the sort of mid-1990s when I was looking for an evangelical to take part in public debates with Roman Catholic priests. And uh, Rob's name was mentioned and that uh, was the start of uh, a very long and enduring and continuing friendship. Uh, in recent years, uh, a few years ago, Rob's first wife died, and I was privileged to be asked to speak at her memorial service. And then last year, the Lord graciously provided him with another wife, and uh, I was asked this time to come and preach uh, in June of last year at their marriage. So Rob has been a long-time good friend. And then another chap is called Mike Gendron, and uh, Mike is based down in Texas, and he has a ministry called Proclaiming the Gospel. And he, like Rob, has been over to Northern Ireland to do meetings for me in times past. And then a third one is uh, a chap called Tim Kaufman, again raised as a Roman Catholic, totally devoted to Mary, and then the Lord graciously saved him. Uh, he doesn't have a ministry. He, he works, well, he, when I first met him, he was working for NASA. Uh, with the height that he is, you know, he was ideally suited for that job, uh, reaching the stars. Uh, and he was involved in uh, work for the European Space Project. I remember he was over in Italy in one year doing something, and then he stopped off uh, in our house and carried off as it was then. And uh, he did some meetings for me. We had Rob staying at the time, so we had to improvise a bed for Tim Kaufman. So we had a camp bed, which we put up in our front lounge, but we had to put a stool at the end of it. Otherwise, his uh, ankles and feet would have been dangling in space. (laughs) So those are three particular good brothers. And it was my privilege to be asked to join them uh, in a conference in May uh, that was held in Springfield in Illinois. Uh, the conference was entitled Former Catholics for Christ, uh, but I'm not a former Catholic. I'm a former, former pagan Protestant who was converted in 1984. And uh, I joined them, uh, and the uh, 
conference was held in Southern View Chapel, whose pastor is a man called Gary Gilley, again a friend who has been over to Northern Ireland to do meetings for me. He wrote some very good books a few years ago. This little church went to markets. This little church went to town. It was addressing the uh, false teachings of the the seeker-sensitive, user-friendly churches. So Gary's church pled host to the conference. So that was in uh, Illinois in May, and I was over there for 10 days. Uh, We discovered afterwards that the title, Former Catholics for Christ Conference, wasn't really a good idea because quite a number of people from Gary's church didn't come along because they thought it was exclusively for people who had been former Roman Catholics. Uh, They did see a lot of it on the Sunday, obviously, because they were at church and we were taking the services, and they were lamenting the fact that they hadn't realized uh, what it was about. So if we ever repeat the conference anywhere, there will definitely be a different title uh, for the conference. But the purpose of the conference was to revisit uh, some of the great truths that were uh, re-established from Scripture uh, at the time of the Reformation. Uh, I probably told you when I was here last year that the previous year, 2017, was one of the busiest years of my ministry ever. And there was a particular reason for that was that it marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I, I had a presentation which I actually presented to yourselves. I looked at the Reformation under four headings. Uh, reasons for the Reformation, uh, reaction to the Reformation, reversal of the Reformation, and rejoicing in the Reformation. And so that kept me extremely uh, busy in 2017. And as I say, we were revisiting these great truths, and I was asked to speak on sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And so what I plan to do uh, tonight and also next Wednesday night is to uh, present what I presented at that conference to you. And I trust and pray that it will be a blessing to you, that it will confirm uh, your trust, your full confidence and trust in the Word of God. So um, that's the background to uh, this. The, the, the solas that were rediscovered Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and according to the scriptures alone. Uh, Some months ago, uh, there's a a very good American pastor called Steve Lawson, and I watched a, a presentation that he did, and he was talking about these five solas, if you like, and he said, uh, the church, uh, there are three upright pillars in the church that the Lord Jesus Christ is building. There's Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And those three upright pillars are supporting a roof on which is emblazoned to the glory of God alone. But underpinning the pillars and the roof, there is a rock-solid foundation, and that is Scripture alone, because it's from the Scripture alone that these other truths spring, if you like. Uh, and First uh, Timothy 3, verse 15, uh, the Apostle Paul, he said this, The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. The church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. It's to be the support of truth. It's to be the location of truth. It's not to be the originator 
of supposed truth. The church is there to support the truth that has been revealed by God and not to come up with its own idea of truth, which, of course, does happen in many areas, not just with Rome, but whether it's the extreme charismatic movement or whatever. So anyhow, uh, the basis for my talk on Sola Scriptura was actually based on the scriptures alone, which may not come as a surprise in the light of the topic. So what I want to do is I want to read two portions of scripture. Uh, the first is from the Old Testament, and then the second is from the New Testament. Uh, the one in the Old Testament is from Psalm 19. It was quite amusing at the conference in America when I said Psalm 19. All of the people there who are American immediately looked at each other and said, is, is it First Samuel or Second Samuel? No. Because <laughs> when you're talking about the Psalms in America, you have to say Psalm 19. It's a much more nasalized sound. So uh, anyhow, tonight for us, it's Psalm 19. Uh, th- this is a psalm in which David, uh, he praises God for the revelation that God has given of himself. In the, in the first uh, six verses, he's praising God for the general revelation of himself in the creation. And then in the verses that I want to read, which are verses 7 through to 11, he's praising God for the revelation of himself in his word. So we'll begin to read at verse 7. This is God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then for the New Testament reading, uh, if you go to Paul's second letter to Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, and I just want to read verses 13 through to 17. They'll be familiar words, these to you. Second Timothy 3 beginning at verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If we go back to uh, the topic of Sola Scriptura, I want uh, tonight uh, to look at the first of two headings that I gave when I was delivering the talk. Uh, The first heading was the positive effects of accepting Sola Scriptura. And then the second heading was the negative defects of abandoning Sola Scriptura. So tonight we're going to be looking at the positive effects of accepting Sola 
Scriptura. And in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11, we see great justification for uh, putting our trust in the Word of God. Now, what I want to do is I want to go through these verses, 7 through to 11, and I'm going to read a phrase, uh, the phrases from those verses. And with each phrase, I'm actually going to turn to C.H. Spurgeon and quote some of the things that he had to say, because I don't think you can get a better commentary, if you like, on this sort of thing. So Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7, uh, what I'll do is I'll read what's in the Word, and then I'll read Spurgeon's comment. So verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. He means the doctrine of God, revealed by God. It is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and felony to take from it. Converting the soul. The great means of the conversion of sinners is the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure. God's witness in his word is so sure that we may draw solid comfort from it. Making wise the simple. Humble, candid, teachable minds receive the word and are made wise unto salvation. Verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right. As a physician gives the right medicine, so does the book of God. Rejoicing the heart. There is no cordial of comfort like that which is poured from the bottle of Scripture. The commandment of the Lord is pure. No mixture of error defiles it. No stain of sin pollutes it. Enlightening the eyes. Scripture is a skillful oculist. That's an eye surgeon. The purity of God's truth cures the natural blindness of the soul. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean. The doctrine of truth cleanses out the love of sin. Enduring forever. The grace of God in the heart is also an abiding and incorruptible principle. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judicial decisions of Jehovah are truth itself. Their justice is unimpeachable. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Bible truth is enriching to the soul in the highest degree. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The pleasures arising from a right understanding of the divine testimonies are of the most delightful order. Verse 11. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. The Bible should be our mentor, our monitor, and the keeper of our conscience. In keeping of them, there is great reward. The main reward is yet to come, and the word used hints as much. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Then shall we know the value of the scriptures if we commit ourselves to them. 
Well, I think those are, are great thoughts from Mr. Spurgeon as we have worked our way through those very important verses. But in the psalm, David points to Scripture alone as being the, the necessary spiritual food from, from conversion to glorification and every stage in between. It's a bit like what the Lord said when he was tempted in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For our spiritual life from conversion to glorification and every stage in between, it is the word of God alone that we turn to. So Psalm 19 certainly, I believe, outlines the positive effects of Sola Scriptura. Uh, But many of those are actually echoed in Psalm 119. Now, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to work my way verse by verse through Psalm 119. But I just want to give you uh, three examples. Uh, Verse 130. The entrance of thy words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. Verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endure forever. Verse 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I led before me. Uh, I like what C.H. Spurgeon again said about Psalm 119. He said this, This sacred ode is a little Bible, the scriptures condensed. And I think there's a lot of truth in that particular statement. Uh, Staying still in the Old Testament, we can see a great example of how Sola Scriptura has the potential to change the spiritual life of a whole nation. Uh, In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we read of uh, a young boy called Josiah who became king at eight years of age. When he was 16, we read that he sought the God of David, who of course is the only true and living God. We read then that he destroyed a lot of the idols that were dedicated to Baal worship and so on. And at age 26, he ordered the restoration of the Temple of Solomon, which of course had been uh, attacked and desecrated and so on at various times. And in that restoration, uh, the high priest Hilkiah, he actually found a copy of the law of Moses, the Torah, Uh, which had survived uh, what had happened. And so he brought it into the presence of King Josiah and he read it to him. And we read, in fact, that the king, having heard this word read to him, he rent his clothes. And that was evidence that he was mourning and he was grieving. And he was mourning and he was grieving over the sinful spiritual state of the nation. So what he then decided to do was he, he assembled the, the leading lights from all aspects of public life and he got them assembled in the temple and he himself read that book to them and the result was that they too were uh, affected by what they heard and the king and these people they covenanted together that they were going to change the direction of the nation and they were going to live according to what they had read in the law of Moses and so the whole 
spiritual life of the nation was transformed and the instrument that was used in it was sola scriptura. And we read an interesting testimony to Josiah in 2 Kings 31 or 23 verse 25. It says this, And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. So in that great reformation, in the time of King Josiah, the scriptures were the instrument that God used. And of course, 502 years ago, similarly, scripture was the instrument that God used to recover the truths that had been covered over and uh, hidden because of all the religious uh, stuff that had been added on to them over the centuries. So sola scriptura, under the power of God's Holy Spirit, is the instrument in salvation, in sanctification, and in service. In other words, it deals with every aspect concerning the Christian life. Uh, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, he wrote of all things that pertain unto life and godliness as being through the knowledge of him. In other words, through the knowledge of God. And a couple of chapters earlier, he explained how such knowledge of God is acquired. He said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Peter didn't point to some extra biblical source for spiritual growth. He pointed to the word of God. That's the means by which you grow and develop. Dreams, visions, other experiences, they had their day in the times of Joseph and Ezekiel. Uh, Peter himself could have glorified or gloried uh, in the great experience he had when he was a witness to the transfiguration. But he doesn't. He directs people away from claimed experiences and so on. And he says in 2 Peter 1.19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereon to you do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Peter ranks scripture way, way above any other claimed experience. And of course, the the days of revelatory uh, experiences and visions and dreams, those have ended according to the scriptures. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And of course, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the one who was promised many times in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when a great future prophet was promised and Moses told the people, you will hearken unto his words. And so, with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the closing of the canon of Scripture, that was all that there is. We must expect no new revelation. In fact, Matthew Henry, commenting on those first two verses in Hebrews, he says this, Now we must expect no new revelation. The excellency of the gospel is the final, the finishing revelation to which nothing is to be added. 
so that now the minds of men are no longer kept in suspense by the expectation of new discoveries, a revelation which God has made by his Son far superior to all the ancient prophets by whom God communicated his will to his people in former times. Those who don't hold to sola scriptura, they have to keep their flock in expectation that some new great revelation is suddenly going to burst forth. And unfortunately, that's happening uh, in particular areas of professing Christendom today. There's a, a church in Reading in California called Bethel, and they are the main leaders of promoting that there is still revelation happening today. And many of the things that they get involved in, frankly, they're into the occult. That's the reality of it. But as I say, they attract loads of people. And of course, they do it because they have very trendy, upmarket, modern, popular type music and so on. Between them and another group called Hillsong, they are leading vast numbers, particularly of young people, astray. But it's always this expectation there's going to be some fresh new revelation. <clears throat> I've watched a video of them in uh, Reading, and uh, they say, look, there's, there's the glory cloud, and you see this mist appearing. Uh, well, to me, it looks like a, some dry ice machine is pumping out, you know, uh, and they've had uh, gold duster feathers falling and all sorts. You know, it's, you know, it's not happening. Um, but there are those who expect things. Uh, some years ago, in 2017, uh, an article uh, appeared in a, a, minute, or a newsletter called Christian News Network, and this is what it said. The International Marian Association has requested that Pope Francis refer to Mary as co-redemptrix with Jesus the Redeemer during the 100th year anniversary of the purported apparitions of Mary in Fatima in Portugal. The article goes on, Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries, that was one of my fellow speakers, uh, told Christian News Network, nowhere in scripture is Mary referred to as co-redeemer or co-mediatrix. It was the Lord Jesus, not Mary, who gave his life as a ransom for many. For anyone to refer to Mary as co-redemptrix not only violates the truth of God's word, it also dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ and robs him of the glory, honor, and praise that he alone deserves. So once you believe that there's some other source of truth, and of course the Roman Catholic Church believes that it can be the source of truth beyond the scriptures, then you run into big trouble. So in these particular last days that you and I are living in, uh, ever since Christ's ascension back to glory, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone should be our highway code for Christian living. And you know, there's a good biblical symmetry between the apostle Peter and the psalmist. Uh, I quoted Peter where he wrote about the scriptures and he pointed to a light that shines in a dark place. Well, Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This Bible is tremendous the way, you know, Different writers from different centuries, moved by the Holy Spirit, they pen the same thoughts. They're not contradictory, they are complementary. So Christian growth and develop, development is by imbibing and ingesting sola scriptura. 
some years ago, uh, a Baptist pastor called W. Graham Scroggy. Uh, he, he died in 1958. He had studied at uh, Spurgeon's College London when Spurgeon's College London was a, a, a sound organization. Sadly, that can't be said about that college today. Uh, back in 2000, they uh, welcomed a document called Dominus Jesus, uh, which was penned by Joseph Ratzinger, who went on to be Pope Benedict XVI. And in that document, uh, you and I, we're not even referred to as churches. We're, we're referred to as ecclesial communities because, of course, Rome believes there's only one true church and that that is them. But anyhow, uh, Graham Scroggy, in his day, he wrote this. He said, Divine knowledge leaves no man stationary. Such knowledge is gained alone by sola scriptura. So if you're gaining knowledge, you won't be marking time. You will be moving forward. So, uh, Psalm 19 was written to glorify God's revelation through general revelation of Scripture, of through creation, and then also through the Scripture. But then I also read the portion from Paul's letter to Timothy. And that was written for an entirely different motive whatsoever. Uh, and what I want to do is, again, I want to go through the verses that I read, and then I will make comment. So Second Timothy chapter 3, and I began at verse 13, and it says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And there are the, the sources of error are identified. So, uh, as I say, this portion of Scripture is not written to glorify God's revelation of himself. It's actually there to give guidance to a young pastor who's going to be confronted with this problem of evil men and seducers. And then Paul goes on to prescribe the antidote. Uh, in verse 14, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learnt, and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learnt them. Uh, Paul's telling Timothy to hold fast to the godly heritage, uh, not what just what he has learnt from Paul, but also what he, he learnt from his grandmother and his mother, who are mentioned by name in chapter 1 of Second Timothy. Uh, and verse 15, he goes on, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Young Timothy was exposed to the scriptures from a very early age. And these obviously alerted him to the reality of his sin and the need for salvation. And that salvation could be found alone in Christ and him crucified. And then Paul says these great words in verse 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The scriptures are not human wisdom. They are the very breathed out words of the living God. Doctrine is simply divine truth. Reproof it exposes wrong belief and wrong behavior. Correction, it has the ability to put people back on the right track. Instruction in righteousness, it gives positive training and instruction for godly 
behavior. And the upshot of it all, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Scripture is able to make the servant of God, it's addressed to Timothy, but it's addressed to us even today, that he is fully equipped for service and for sanctified living. So just like Psalm 19, these verses declare that Scripture alone meets every spiritual need from conversion to glorification, everything in between, salvation, sanctification, service. It says God's words are breathed out. And God's writers are basically spirit-propelled. Uh, in Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter wrote this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That word interpretation really means of private origin. In other words, humans are not the originator of divine scripture. They are the ones who are moved by God to write down the very words that God wants to convey to humanity. Because he goes on in verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It wasn't by the will of man. You get people today who have a, a hang-up uh, or a particular viewpoint, and they try to put it across that this is the truth and so on. But no, God moved men in times past to write down the inspired words that he gave them. Uh, I, I, the usual illustration when it says about holy men of God were moved. Uh, I remember as a young Christian, uh, every speaker used the same illustration. It's a bit like, you know, a yacht and the wind comes along and fills the sails, and it propels it across uh, the sea. Uh, I was actually sitting looking out uh, at the front uh, before I went round to Ray's house at tea time, and there was a yacht coming in, and it had the sail up, and it was being blown along. And then it actually stopped about the end of the pier, took the sail down, and then it started to move again. I presume it was motorized. Maybe they are able to maneuver a bit easier to get into the harbor than with the sail up. But anyhow, but I, I got another illustration uh, a couple of months ago. Margaret and I were away on holiday. Uh, and uh, the place we were staying, there was a nice pool area, and there were plastic recliners uh, outside. But there was one particular day in the holiday, and it wasn't a very nice day, and there was an absolute gale blowing. And so we were looking out, and there was not a soul around the pool area. But here were these plastic recliners being blown along. And I thought, well, that's the way the Holy Spirit moved holy men of old to write the scriptures. So that's an alternative to the wheel, the, the, the seals being filled. But anyhow, the scriptures contain everything. As Peter wrote, all things that pertain unto, in other words, are relevant to life and godliness. So, from the scriptures alone, Psalm 19 and 2 Timothy 3, despite differing motives, one was the glory of God's revelation. The other was guidance for a young pastor. Both of those passages of Scripture detail the positive effects of accepting sola scriptura. Uh, one of the Puritans was a man called Thomas Brooks, and he wrote this. The word of the Lord is a light to guide you, a counselor to counsel you, a comforter to comfort you, a staff to support you, a sword to defend you, 
and a physician to cure you. The word is a mind to enrich you, a robe to clothe you, and a crown to crown you. And I do believe that the word of God does all of those things. So if it does all of those things, what need is there for anything over and above the scriptures alone? So that, I believe, sets out the positive effects of accepting sola scriptura. And God willing, if we're all spared to next Wednesday, I will be talking about the negative defects of abandoning sola scriptura. May God bless his word to us.